District of Conservation is sponsored by the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, better known as CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thanks for listening to the program. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next? Last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. We're revisiting with friend of the show and one of the best conservationists I know, Travis Thompson, to talk about all things Florida and how things in Florida also permeate across the country. First, Travis gives us a glimpse into how duck ranching, which marries private landowners, specifically ranchers and farmers, and waterfall operations and the successes they had this year. I was really sad to miss out on such an adventure. I plan to go this year now that my schedule is a lot more settled and I won't have any crazy fluctuations in my work schedule. Things are really settled now. We also go into Travis's organization, All Florida, what they do involving duck ranching in a sense. And he really goes into detail over snail kite banding and efforts to protect endangered species on private lands. If you didn't know, 66% of threatened and endangered species reside on private habitat, falling on ranches, farms, private land, and why the Endangered Species Act does not yet recognize these stakeholders or fails to do so. Or you have environmentalists suing to keep these people out of negotiations, out of involvement. And then we conclude with an update on Florida's right to hunt and fish amendment, kind of the idiosyncrasies of that, what is happening, what the viability of it passing is copycat movements or copycat bills that we're following in Ohio, Washington State, and even West Virginia has a right to hunt and fish amendment, and what it means and why preemptive protections on hunting and fishing are necessary, especially as a tool, to outmaneuver preservationist anti-hunters and others who really are adamant about seeking to destroy the hunting way of life and why we haven't seen such a protection yet in Florida, but this may be the year. Now onto our conversation with Travis. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the program. Travis Thompson, host of the Cast and Blast podcast and purveyor of duck ranching. Travis, how are you doing, my friend? Good to have you back on. I'm doing good, Gabby. It's so good to be back on. I think it's like my third or fourth time on. We love having you on the program. Everyone loves the Florida episodes. I have to have you, Mike, and everyone else from Florida because everyone's intrigued by what you guys are doing. So it's more than natural to welcome you back. But we have to do some catching up because you've done a lot in the last year with duck ranching. You guys have really upped the ante with your nonprofit, All Florida, which we'll go into. And then also we have talked about this here, and I was happy to come to your eyes' defense over criticism pertaining to efforts relating to you guys wanting to pass a right to hunt and fish amendment. So we have a lot to unpack. But first talk about what you have been up to um, as it relates to duck ranching, what is duck ranching and and how has it kind of exploded onto the scene? I've seen a lot of people, social media friends of mine, ladies I've interacted with in kind of the outdoor industry space, they came and partook in duck ranching. So what gave you the idea to do duck ranching? Who's involved? 
And what has been the success so far with the first season? Okay, so so technically this is the first season of Duck Ranching. And and by the way, Gabby, I know that you're from California. It's ranching. It's not ranching. It's ranching. Ranching. Okay. OG. Like you gotta get that <laughs> southern near Virginia. I know. Now, that's still the South. No. So um so we've technically we've been doing it for about three years, but we've only branded it Duck Ranch in the last year. So um, Matt Pierce, who you know, my wonderful very good friend, guy, well, yes, he's my partner on on the Duck Duck Ranch venture, um, and, and an awesome conservationist advocate for agriculture, hunting, Florida, you name it. He's he's incredible. So Matt actually coined the term because we put so much work into the land trying to get ready for duck hunting season. And then we had so much success that as a cattle rancher, he was like, I'm out here ranching ducks. I'm, I'm a duck rancher now I'm, I'm doing duck ranching. And so he, he coined that phrase. And so then um, last year we had so much problem, so many problems with water. Like we, we just could not hold water. It was a really dry year. Uh, you know, most of our operations are right on the, they're in the traditional Everglades, but they're kind of just North of big Cypress. And it was a very, very dry year last season. And so we fought really hard to try to get water moved around and everything else. And so kind of our rallying cry every time, you know, we were making a reel or just a story or a Snapchat or anything else was like, what are you doing? And whoever you ask that question to would say duck ranching. And it, it kind of took on a life of its own. And so this year we created a brand around it and, and uh, my, the incredible designer, Bree Drake, um, I don't know. I'm sure you've seen the Duck Ranch and logo, but it's the kind of with the ducks hidden inside it. Um, man, she, she that's one of my favorite things. She's done a lot of logos and designs for us. That is such an incredible, incredible design. And people that see it are like, oh, my gosh, like I've got to have that. Like, how, how do I get a hat with that or a shirt or anything else? And we're working on merchandise like we've had a little bit, but it's been fits and stars. So we do Duck Ranch and um, the idea behind it is kind of simple. Uh, conservation in Florida, if we're going to move conservation forward in Florida, private lands are going to have to be a huge component of it. Um, the, the the cost of land has gone up so much that it's not really feasible to add, you know, a new WMA every year. At the same time, the state of Florida is growing exponentially. 800 people a day move here. So where do the hunters go? You know, public land, I grew up hunting public land. Private land has become very expensive. Public land has become very crowded and limited. So is there some kind of a hybridized situation out there where you have a a, a, almost a public-private interest or a, a non-profit, for-profit interest working together to allow people to access some private land. And thankful for folks like Matt that are visionary around this stuff, um, we were able to come together and kind of create a, a lower-cost model for like a DIY-type hunt. So we do offer guided hunts, but primarily what we offer are DIY hunts where people are paying us essentially a trespass fee. And we transport them out to a spot, uh, sometimes as a blind, sometimes as cover. Sometimes we tell them to bring their own materials and make a blind. But they bring their own decoys, their own shotgun, and we give them access to this beautiful piece of property that we've managed the best way we can. Now, we're not – we kill a lot of limits of ducks, but we're not only killing limits of ducks. I mean, it is still hunting. It's not, you know, it's not the, the high, highest dollar of hunt. But it's still a really good quality hunt on a really pretty piece of property that's in a conservation easement, and there's a good story around it. So duck ranching is the idea of connecting people to this place, connecting them to a land. And we've had a lot of other landowners reach out to us about this model. Like anytime we go talk to anyone at the Cattlemen's Association or 
or anyone in the conservation world, they're like, they, they want to talk about duck ranching and it, it's really cool. So we, you mentioned we did a, a camp this year. We had a lot of women come in from around the country and we were able to show them part of it. Although we had a tropical storm while they were here, that was unusual for us, but, um, it's, it's cool. It's, it's a, it's a really neat idea. Read it really neat experience. You got to come do it. We'll plan to do it this winter because my schedule will be more settled. And I promise you that I, I you know, <laughs> guarantee that uh, because it'll be a lot more even keeled. But have other states kind of seen what you guys are doing? Because I feel like this model could work even outside Florida. It could work in the Carolinas. It could perhaps work even out west, wherever they have duck hunting. Um, maybe Texas, too. I feel like something like this could play out in Texas where there's a lot of private land and the situations are right where you can have this cooperative you know, not to get too deep too fast, but like I study game theory a lot. And that's that's like one of my I'll say hobbies. Like I just think it's interesting. I think game theory is fascinating. And there's this concept in game theory where you can trade off it's a trap. It's, it's termed a, a multiplayer trap or a, a Moloch trap. But it's the idea of you can trade off long-term games for short-term payoffs. And I think sometimes uh, I struggle with this in like duck ranching. I could raise the price, run less clients, probably produce a little bit better hunt for the clients I do run, but I would price out a number of people that wouldn't be able to come into the gate. And as we know that hunter numbers are declining, um, something that Matt and I have really had a lot of conversations about is recruiting new hunters. So we target new hunters often. Um, we we celebrate first ducks. We have a little signboard that people hang, hold when they – it's like their first day of school, but it's their first duck that they've it's ever so shot. It's really cute. Uh, one of our guides' wives made this for us, and it's incredible. But the idea there being we're increasing the number of hunters, and ultimately, like if I'm altruistic about it, but also if you don't look at it through a business lens, we're looking at long term. Those are people that will pay us for multiple hunts over multiple seasons because they're becoming water fowlers versus going and competing for the same group of hunters that's over that's that's a little bit uh, watered down and we're all competing for the same clients. We're trying to create new clients and giving them new experiences that are beyond just the duck hunt. And I say that in answer to your other states question. I think we have not seen, um, we've seen a lot of people that are interested in it. We haven't seen a lot of people pull the trigger because the to pull the trigger on it, there has to be the idea that you're going to do more with this than just the short-term game. I, and I, I don't want people to hear this and say, oh, he gives away hunts if people don't kill ducks, because I don't. But I have taken people on a very bad duck hunt before, where I put them out there and they don't see a duck, and it's miserably hot. And it's and I think they should have. I wouldn't have had them come if I didn't think they were going to see ducks. In that case, I'll go back to them and say, look, I'm going to refund you your money, or you can pay us and you can come back free on our dime or whatever. And I've done that in those cases because – the the long-term benefit of them coming back one, three, five, seven times, that payoff's way more than that one-time hunt. And I'm really trying to connect them to this land in this place and create a special memory for them. And I wasn't able to do it the way I wanted to that day. And again, it's not about the pile of ducks, but it is about the experience a little bit. So um, I think we would love to see other states and other other opportunities for this to grow, uh, we've even offered to to work with other landowners to create their own programs or to work with us to let us create a program on their property. And we've had some interest in that, but we haven't we haven't nailed it down with anybody yet. But we've had a lot of interest in those conversations around um, like basically creating more duck ranches around the state. Again, whether we run them or whether someone else runs them, the more people that are hunting, the better for everyone. And the more people that are, I'm going to say this carefully, the more people that go in behind gates 
uh, and and I mean that with a with a managed, respectful way. Uh, the better that is, even for the private landowners too, because it's a revenue stream, but it's also it's also a PR advocacy. I mean, we have people now that have no connection to cattle that are out there saying, "Oh my gosh, agriculture is the most important thing." Not just because we like to eat steak, but also because look at what they're doing for conservation. Look at what they're doing for allowing us to hunt. Look at like you. That's hard to really put a dollar figure on, but we're creating those advocates almost every Saturday morning. Cows keep Florida green, as we learned when you guys took us out and showed me and Madison around almost three years ago. I can't believe that. And to have those cattle on the landscape is extremely important. And as you mentioned, because, you know, out east especially, we have mostly private land. So how can you incentivize landowners to create opportunities to allow people to go into the field? So this sounds like a really creative idea to me. I'm really big about innovation, as you know, and, and being creative, kind of creatively disrupting things in a way where you can overcome, let's say, red tape or let's say crazy regulations that come in to make it extremely hard for you to access, or maybe you have limitations on certain types of land you can access or activities. Not saying that that would be a cop-out, but saying like as a way to overpower, let's say, certain regulations, private actors, private interests have to come in and be innovative and creative and kind of put the government to shame and say, we're actually eating your lunch when it comes to conservation. You need to be better. You said that way better than I would have. Like, I believe hunting is intrinsically important. And I believe in the idea of public trust around wildlife and being able to chase animals. At the same time, I also recognize that if we're going to have conservation moving forward in a state like Florida, it's going to be on private lands. So we've got to figure out something different than what we've done because what we what's the old simplistic saying, what, what got you here won't take you there. We know as you look at the trends that I think there's like 12,000 waterfowl hunters in Florida now. Like it's a really, really low number, 14,000. And that's duck stamps sold, so you know that not all of them hunt. Um, that's in a state with 21 and a half million people. So how can we change that? How can we look at that better? And in doing so, can we leverage water storage? Can we leverage uh, you know, better habitat for all these other animals that we love to talk about? These, um, I'll, I'll say endangered species, but not just endangered species, like just lots of wildlife that is not non-game species um, that we're able to provide really good habitat for. And as we all love to eat red meat, you're still allowing cattle on the landscape and you're using them as a tool in conservation. And I, I just, I think it's a really unique, the, the thing I kind of say a lot lately is Aldo Leopold had the five tools of conservation. It was the plow and the cow, which is your agriculture. It was the ax, which is your silviculture or forestry. The, the match, which is your burning, which you could do on almost any of that. And the one that no one talks about in that space is the gun. And if you look at all these these lands that we put into easement, um, we we do conservation easements all the time, both at a state and federal level in our state. And we put them into easements and we allow cattle to continue to graze on them. If we're not creating hunters, I worry long term who's going to pay and support the management of that land. Because you may have cattle on it today, and I hope that you have cattle on it forever. At the same time, if you see a ranching family that kind of divests or or maybe they have children and the children don't want to be in ranching, what then happens to that land? Because cows are crucial to keeping that land managed. Um, you know, if if not, it becomes overgrown with just a, a monoculture of like in our area, it would be primrose willow or something. You're not going to see like oak trees and stuff sprout up. You're going to see like kind of nasty little uh, uh, 
prairie of primrose willow, it's going to start to have degradation of wildlife. You're not going to see wildlife use it the same way. So I really want to say, if you look at the use of the land, sportsmen are critical to the long-term preservation, conservation of the land because they need the land to be in use. They need the land to hold wildlife so they continue to use it. And that can create a revenue stream for a landowner long-term, which allows for management of the land in the proper way. I think Florida does conservation easements the best because there are some controversies attached to it, especially when it comes to putting them for like non-uses, especially at West. That kind of troubles me a bit. And and there's some debate over, you know, perpetuity, how long you keep them. But I, I feel like Florida does it the best. And especially when you think of in the greater scheme of things of private landowners, I was looking at different information from recent, you know, anniversary reports of the Endangered Species Act. And we're going to see these increased conflicts, whether it's in Western or Eastern states, because the federal government does not recognize that private landowners like Matt have properties that are home to a lot of endangered or threatened species. And I think once they understand that and they understand there's an incentive that's already playing out or, or these processes are playing out with these landowners like Matt and others who want to conserve these species, don't want to ruin them, don't want to imperil them, um, but create this habitat that's fertile ground for them. I think a lot of the problems will be solved in in more kind of tricky situations or um, more complicated scenarios, you know, where there's less pro- public land and, and where there's more bountiful private land. Um, we haven't seen a revolution in a sense in this case, and, and there's no understanding from federal government right now um, with this. So I'm encouraged by what you guys have done in Florida, and I'm I'm encouraged that maybe some ESA reforms or some ESA case studies can be looked at from here to be like, hey, Florida's doing this. The numbers of certain imperiled species are growing. Why aren't we doing this elsewhere? But for them, they don't care, to be honest, <laughs> about doing that. They're like, we have to create a crisis and show that, you know, these species are imperiled. Let's not have any, you know, solutions to solving it. But I think states like Florida can have an answer to that. We're, we're disrupting that as well. So we'll get to that Um when we pivot away from duck ranching, we can we can kind of we can kind of talk about that some too, because we're, we're disrupting that a little bit as well. And what type of ducks do you guys have in Florida? Because I know every flyway has different species, some similar species. I've largely participated in the Mid Atlantic Flyway. I've had my only one duck hunting experience with a married couple friend of mine, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun, and I worked very hard to get the duck that I got. <laughs> but what is a uh, kind of privy to your guys's flyway? So, so for the for the ranch lands that we hunt, um, it's primarily puddle ducks. Um, your, your model duck, which is a Florida endemic bird, mostly primarily, um, but then also your pintails, your shovelers, your teal, your both blue wing and green wing. We kill a lot of those, and then uh, we also like so Florida. I, I I kept track. I think you could if you planned it. I think you could kill twenty five species of duck in Florida every year. If you planned it and you targeted when you go around, but some of those are like your divers that prefer salt water, like your buffleheads or your bluebills, or we even see some golden eyes killed in Florida. The common, um, we see a lot of scoters like surf, surf ducks that are killed off the coast. So Florida holds a lot of ducks for us at the duck ranch. Most of our stuff is puddle ducks. Um, and then we also, we do kill some whistlers. Um, I hate whistling ducks. People want to ask about them and talk about them all the time. They're they're neat. They eat really good. They're kind of hard for us to pin down on the ranch. Um, they do really good in urban environments. There's whistling ducks actually sitting in my backyard right now. Huh. But they do they do really good in urban environments. So you'll see lots of people that hunt them kind of um, on the edge of urban areas. But uh, and and that's not to say you can't kill them in other places. We just we don't have what they love. So we'll get a few that show up here or there and we hunt them. 
and then they'll disappear for three or four weeks and come back. But Florida is a super neat state for, for waterfowl hunting. And it, it kind of gets overlooked um, when you think about the flyaway states. Cause the other thing I tell people a lot is Florida is one of the neatest states for variety packs because we don't have mallards. Um, oh, I didn't a, know that. If you kill a greenhead mallard in Florida or you see a greenhead mallard in Florida, there's a good chance it was a domestic duck that got away. Most from likely. Yeah. Florida. And you know, in all of the years running hunts, I, so I've been guiding for waterfowl in the state since uh, 2014 or 15. So it's almost 10 years, nine years. Uh, I've never killed a duck that I would consider a greenhead, period. And we do get some hybrids with the models because they're both the genus Anis and they can produce offspring that's non-sterile. So that you can get some hybridization going there. Um, if you move away from any urban center, like on the duck ranch, in three years of of running hunts down there, I think we've killed one model duck out of maybe four or five hundred that would count even as a hybrid. So you really see so here's your species thing. This is a duck that's endemic to Florida. And because of these types of lands and this type of water, you're you're allowing them to to kind of thrive and prosper. Whereas if you see this urban encroachment. In those areas, that's where you'll kill lots of birds. That have what the double white wing bars is how you kind of tell the difference between a hybrid and a and a non-hybrid. For lack of a deeper conversation, that's how you tell. We don't ever see those on any of these remote ranches or or any of the places. And I'm talking not just Clouston, like Okeechobee area. Even even in those areas, you don't see the hybridization there. I did see a model duck. I think the same thing in California happens. I was in Fresno area. And I, I don't know if these were domesticated ducks, but they look different than a conventional mallard. So it's not isolated to Florida, but that's so interesting. And, and you've told me about kind of the offerings, and I hope I get to experience it. Travis, why don't we pivot over to your organization, All Florida? Because I've had you on the show before, and you've made a nod to the organization, but I feel like you should dish out more on what you guys do, especially your recent kind of forays into kite banding. That was really cool to see. I loved seeing the videos and the footage from that. So talk about All Florida and what you guys are doing there. Yeah, and this is going to fold back into your ESA conversation too, and it'll get back to the Duck Ranch, so this will come full circle. But All Florida, um, the idea behind it was uh, we saw lots of organizations out there that were either species groups, which I'm a member of of a lot of those, um, or they are hunting-specific groups or they are fishing-specific groups, or – the other thing that's kind of come really to fruition in Florida, we've always had environmental groups, but we've seen what I will call land conservation groups. And so you have these groups and they're all working really hard on really good things, but there's no connectivity between them. And so what we did with creating all Florida was to kind of take a wider lens. And, and the analogy I use is, is pieces on a chessboard versus the board itself. Um, Take an organization like CCA Florida, incredible organization in the state of Florida. I don't want to speak for them nationally or other states. That's not a dig. I just don't know them. I don't know anything about them. CCA Florida is a really good organization, really strong, does good habitat work, does incredible fisheries work, and they show up in every meeting all the time. They're never going to connect how, I'm going to say, a Goliath group of regulation is also connected to how we manage bears or how we manage waterfowl or whatever else. And so what all Florida, what we try to do is show the similarities between those things to try to create synergies and to help use that to leverage better wildlife management, better land conservation, better land use, and better outcomes for all the citizens. So if you care about water quality, you should care about land. So we see groups that'll stand up and say, we want better, cleaner water in the state. 
but you never see them show up and advocate for land protection or land conservation or easements on working lands, et cetera. And so there's these disconnects where we tend to stay in our own silos. And I think there's a lot of effectiveness in that, but something that we are taking on, and and it's been a big challenge, is the idea of looking at what's termed in our state landscape level conservation. And that's the idea of um, someone's like, oh, you're talking about like runoff from your yard. I'm like, no, not landscaping. Landscape level conservation is the idea of all of a all of a macro level uh, environment or, or, or community exists together. So man is part of conservation. Like that's not that's not a new thought that goes back. You can find George Perkins Marsh talking about that in the 1850s. Um, we we are part of it, even in our development, even in our growth, even in our how we how we continue to grow and and in Florida develop develop develops the word I'll I'll use all the time so I don't have a lot of good synonyms for that but can we develop smarter can we develop better and do it in ways that also um, ensure that there are wild spaces wild places as well as agricultural use as well as places for us to go and recreate and hunt and fish and so all Florida is kind of this idea that we are taking a look at the whole board not just a single piece on the board. And that's in no way reductive to any of those organizations because, and I picked on CCA because I'm a lifetime member of CCA and a huge fan of what they do. So I know that they won't take it badly, but the idea is we want to work across all of these organizations and help connect them where they, they need to, to, we want to help fill in the gaps. How about that? Cause they're, they're really good organizations. So we want to help kind of fill in the gaps. And the other thing that we are really passionate about is showing up, um, I, I think that the term, the way we term it, and it's a little bit insidery focused, but is we want to create conservationists. You know, fundraising is not my forte, so that's that's always a problem when you have a nonprofit is you got to pay the bills somehow. But our idea is we want to create more people that are informed about the things they care about. And so how often do we want to fish or hunt? And what we really care about is showing up at the at the dock that day and catching our fish or showing up at the, the duck ranch that day and shooting our ducks. And we don't really think much about what goes into making sure that that's able to happen. And that's conservation ultimately, like that's, that's really all conservation. And so I've, I've been disheartened over the years to show up and see no one show up on a hunting regulation change or a land use regulation change or a fisheries regulation change. And one of our big, big kind of things around all Florida is the idea of we want people to show up. Um, and so for someone like me, obviously waterfowl hunting has always been very important and near and dear to my heart. If it's a waterfowl thing, I care deeply about it. If it's something for Gabby, Gabby may care about bird watching. We want you to show up for the stuff that you care about and be in the room and help influence the decisions so that we get better outcomes for everyone that's involved. And so you, I, I say all that as kind of a, a, a laying the groundwork for on the duck range this year, we discovered, and they've always been there, but we, we discovered snail kites, which are an endangered species. Um, there's around 3,000 of them in the state. And Matt called me one day and he's like, man, there are just snail kites everywhere out here. He's like, we need to get somebody to come look at them. And so we called someone at another organization kind of in the birding world and we're like, hey, do you, do you guys want to do something with this? And they were like, ah, nah, it's fine, whatever. So we thought, well, that's weird because there's they're saying there's 3,000 of these birds left in the state, and there's got to be three or 400 of them on this singular piece of private property that no one knows they're there. So we we started digging around, and um, I, I happen to know someone from FWC that is the snail kite biologist, and I called him and I said, look, man, 
Um, there's a bunch of snail kites here. I think you guys should know about it. I don't know what else to do there other than tell you. Like, I have no obligation beyond that. We're going to run duck hunts and continue to work cattle and stuff there. And he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to want to come see that. So he came out, FWC came out with uh, the University of Florida. And they they called me and they said, do you know if there's any nests? And I'm like, dude, I wouldn't know what a snail kite nest looked like if it fell and hit me in the head. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we brought them out there onto the property. You know, they brought an airboat and we carted them around all day and they were like, well, there's a nest and there's a nest and there's a nest and there's a nest. So we had nesting actively happening on the property and they came to us and they were a little bit, Matt wasn't there that day. They came to me and they were like, you know, um, we would really love the opportunity to come back and and band these, these nests and and stuff. But we know that you're also going into early teal season. This was back in September. Um, Would that be okay? And we were like, absolutely. And it was striking to me they were so shocked that we would allow them to come in the gate and that we as sportsmen were willing to work with them, that we as cattle ranchers were willing to work with them to let them onto the property. And honestly, we took days and had volunteers in boats going around helping them catch them and ban them. And it was really kind of a cool moment to, to look at these researchers who kind of, they had a predetermined idea of how the reception was going to be by the private landowner and the private land user. And we kind of confounded that by disrupting it by saying, absolutely, why would we have fear of it? And they said, well, you know, private landowners are always worried we find an endangered species on there and we're going to shut this down or shut that down. And I said, look, this is kind of a unique situation because these snail kites are dependent on water and then ultimately snails. And we're only holding the water so that we can duck hunt. I said, if you guys tell us that we couldn't duck hunt, we can go pull the we can go pull the riser boards and the water goes away. And the snail kites would also they wouldn't die. They would just disperse. Um, so I was like, this has got to be a symbiotic relationship. We've got to be able to work together to figure out ways to do this. And they were like, absolutely. We, we totally agree with that. And so it was kind of refreshing because so often at the federal level, at the state level, you hear kind of these back and forth where people don't want to work together or there's distrust. Mm-hmm. And one thing Matt has been so good about is being trusting of people um, until they give you a reason not to trust you. And And that's something that I kind of wrap myself around too, is the idea of, there was no reason for us not to trust them. And we had these birds there and we knew we could manage it well. We knew that we could, we knew that we could manage this property well and have good duck hunts and continue to graze cattle and go grow good cows and also impact this species in a really cool way. So they, they come every week and they, they do a survey and they check the nests and, and, um, you know, we brought our own airboats out there and we're able to help them do some of that. Obviously, we had a licensed bander on each boat. And uh, I think over the course of the season, we ended up banding like 60 some odd air of these of these snail kites, baby snail kites that fledged out, flew away safely. Um, and those were just the ones that we could count. There were also a number that were too high that we couldn't get to that likely flew away fine. So if you look at this as a, as a whole story. Is a conservation easement paid for by by NRCS by the by the farm bill. Um, it's got cattle working on it. It's got a hunting operation working on it, and it's raising an endangered species. And to me, that's a really powerful story. That maybe we should be looking for more of that type of story to tell, as sportsmen, as conservationists, as private landowners, etc. And so we did, we, we documented the entire thing. We, we had a, a photographer work with us and a videographer work with us. 
And uh, we'll be releasing a little, it's it's not a film, it's three minutes long, but a little vignette on that um, March 1st that, that kind of tells that story and shows it. And I, I'm really proud of it, I'm really proud of the work that we did there. Uh, the cattlemen, the the sportsmen, and and the conservationists and all of us. I cannot wait to see the video on March 1st. So put that on my radar and I will share. Is there anything else that you guys are working on outside of the kite research? Um, so we are, <laughs> we're, we're working on a lot of, stuff like that connecting people to advocacy and trying to do some storytelling that connects them to uh why why conservation matters to them but the other thing that we've been working quite a bit on is the right to hunt and fish in florida let's move into that what has been going on i mean i i was happy to come to your guys's defense because i felt like it was a personal attack that sun sentinel op-ed the the op-ed heard around the country and I felt personally insulted on behalf of you and Mike and everyone else working on this initiative. I don't know if you're doing it with in conjunction with All Florida or separately from that. But as we've talked about on this program many times, this is a very simple clarifying item just to protect and enshrine the right to hunt and fish. It doesn't encroach on property rights. It doesn't encourage poaching. It doesn't increase criminality. It just ensures that lawful hunting, fishing, trapping, foraging depending upon the variation of the language, Washington state actually has a version which includes foraging and trapping as well. But it it just is an added kind of buffer against preliminary attacks to hunting. Why have, why has there been such a visceral reaction, especially in your guys's media to this effort, which is pretty bipartisan, pretty non-controversial and just would have enhancements to protect hunting and fishing for future generations, given threats that are, you know, transpiring right now all across the country. Well, first, I want to say this. Yes, we are working on that through All Florida. Um, one of the terms we use when we describe All Florida is authentic conservation. And what we mean by that is we do cover it all. So we are not just going to advocate for one thing. I don't think you can do conservation without ha- having hunting and fishing in the conversation. I think that's that's silly. Um, and, I, and I know there's some organizations out there that do believe that. But I, I just... I draw that line in the sand. Like we've got to be able to be okay with, (laughs) and it seems silly for me to say that as a hunter, but where I go with that is if you look at our state um, and I don't want to get too far into the politics of our state, but our state is not for as red as we are. We are not as hunter friendly as you might think we are. Um, We see this mass transition of people that move here from other places. um, And, you know, they're comfortable with you hunting in, Colorado, or they're comfortable with you hunting on Lake Michigan, but they're not necessarily comfortable you hunting in the lake that's behind their their neighborhood. And so it's become a little bit of a, where does hunting stand in the state? And if you look at, if you look at the North American conservation model, you know, I've heard Shane Mahoney say before that hunting really exists for a, a handful of reasons. One is subsistence. Like we, we have the ability to gather food. But all of us live near a Publix for the most part now or, or whatever your grocery store is up there in Virginia, and you're able to go buy food. The The second reason is conservation funding. Like that's the thing that hunters always stand next to is, well, we generate so much money for conservation funding. The state of Florida uh, this year, their conservation budget between land conservation and wildlife conservation is billion and a half dollars, $1.2, $1.4 billion dollars. Hunters are worth about $35 million in that whole ball of wax. So our contribution is not nearly significant enough to keep us at the table. And when that happens, when that happens, the only way that you can ensure that there's going to be a future for hunting and fishing is 
to have this this amendment, have have a constitutional right in your state. So I think this is a little bit of a disconnect and, and very short sighted, I think, by some of the I'll call them conservation groups in our state to not support this, not to be outwardly supportive of this, because, as I said a few minutes ago, Aldo Leopold, the father of conservation, would tell you that there's five land management tools, five tools of conservation. This is simply using the gun. That's that's what we're talking about here is is a, is a tool that has been used in conservation for generations. We want to ensure that that's able to continue to happen so that all this land that we're protecting, all this land that we're putting into easements, all these private lands that we're putting protections in, that we're able to continue to um, leverage this tool for conservation, which also, I said $35 million isn't much in the $1.2 billion. It ain't nothing either, though. Like, like that's still a good chunk of money that can be used for wildlife management, conservation programs, et cetera. So it, it's, it's a little bit... It's hard because this is such a nuanced subject and you got to get really kind of into the policy wonk side of it to understand why it why it matters beyond just, you know, we'd like to protect hunting and fishing. And and I've had people tell me, well, fishing's under no threat. Like uh, fishing is fishing's worth almost 14 billion dollars in the state of Florida. But have they seen the vessel speed rule? I mean, the the Gulf of Mexico one is defeated, but the Atlantic one. You've had my good friend and now your good friend, Dylan Hubbard, on here a couple of times, or at least once, to talk about the vessel speed rule and the impacts it would have on fishermen. That's one example. I'm going to give you another one, Gabby. We went through a whole whole rigmarole last year in Florida where the Sunshine Skyway Fishing Pier, I'm going to be close on this stat, so don't hold me to it, but it's the most popular fishing pier in the United States, maybe the eastern United States, but it's, it's popular. Um, and these are the spans of the old bridge. The old bridge was hit in the 80s by a boat, and it collapsed. And so the spans that kind of go out to the middle are open as fishing piers. And there was a concerted effort by animal rights activists to close down those fishing piers because pelicans, brown pelicans, were getting entangled in fishing gear. And I want to be clear, I don't want to see brown pelicans entangled in fishing gear, but I think there's a lot of questions that need to be answered there as far as We've seen an increase in the number of brown pelicans, like a tremendous increase. They've been delisted nationally. They've been delisted in the state. They've been downlisted multiple times. Um, we know that they can be trained to to begin to associate fishermen with food. And are there deterrents? Are there not ways that we could go about um, like uh, uh, trying to condition them off the bridge using air guns or horns or sprinklers or something to that effect? But the the quickest solution that we were going to was to close down some section of the pier and put punitive restrictions on fishermen on the pier. And this again is a thing that I stepped in or we stepped in with all Florida and with a number of other groups, CCA and and Dillon and Florida guides association. And we really got involved there. And we're like, look, we don't want to see pelicans dying. No one wants to see that at the same time, this is a fishing pier. So could we explore some other options before we get to this? And I, I I use that as kind of a casual example of it's not the big stuff where they take you out. It's the little stuff like that where suddenly you lose access to this fishing pier. I don't want to be too diversity guy on this, but growing up, I was pretty poor. That was a place where I could go fish and catch fish for dinner without a heavy effort. I didn't have a boat. I was able to catch grouper or mackerel or whatever, like edible fish off this bridge. We see it with uh, local kids are able to ride their bikes there or 
Um, it's very, it's, it's an old road. So a wheelchair bound fisherman is able to fish there easier because of the, the accessibility of it. So this pier is not just about having a place to fish. I've got a boat. I can go fish anywhere, but it's about the idea of conservation and how important these, these pursuits are to conservation. And we talk about attacks on fishing and hunting. I don't know that I would consider that an, an overt attack, but it absolutely was a thing that would erode away at the accessibility and opportunity for people to be Correct. able to fish. And it's, it's very important. We see those kinds of things occur regularly. I, I did a news hit uh, last night on a local lake where the hunters don't want people to hunt on this lake. And it's because one half of the lake is a subdivision and then the other half of the lake is all wild. And it, the lake's probably a half mile wide. It's play, You're not going to be able to shoot the house if you're hunting on the wild side <laughs> of the lake. And I'm like, this really is about noise. These people don't want noise, and so they begin to push back on hunting and fishing. And in reality, hunting and fishing are two of the most important conservation tools that we have, not just from a from a land management standpoint, but also from a a land use perspective. Um, you know, this gets dicey for me, especially on on this podcast. the The number one complaint we hear in Florida is that it's growing too fast. And as a as a capitalist, sometimes I'm like, well, how is that a bad thing? But also you can lose somewhat sometimes what makes a state what it is or a place what it is. And so as a conservative, I like to see growth. I like, you know, the financial, the financial benefits of that, et cetera. But the flip side of that is you can't just grow it all at, at, with no no uh kind of parameters in place to ensure that it's good growth. Responsible so, development. Yes. Thank you. That's that's the word I'm trying to I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. And so hunting and fishing and hunting in particular can be a tool for that, especially on some of these lakes where we want to develop every inch of every shore in the state because it's worth a lot of money. And and I get that. At the same time, if we have hunting on a lake, maybe that discourages some of that development or slows it down to some degree or comes to a, a coexistence where we accept hunting on the lake, even though we're going to continue to grow. And I think that's the tool that many people miss in the conversation. And I think that's Part of the reason the right to hunt and fish or the right – we've turned it the right to fish and hunt because fishing is obviously a much bigger tool in Florida than than hunting is. Um, if you look at economic impacts, I think fishing is like $13.5 billion and hunting's It is, yeah. Two. I think hunting's like 1.6 or 1.8. So um, fishing is really – you know, everyone in Florida fishes, no one in Florida hunts if you look at the overall population. Uh, but it's, it's really critically important that these protections be put in place and – Someone once told me this was recently. Well, why are we doing this now? Like, there's not a there's not an overt threat. We're not Washington and, or Colorado or Colorado. And I said, if you wait until the threat is knocking at the door, like you're not going to be able to get it done. Like that's that's too late at that point. So you've got to be proactive about this. You've got to take the right approach to it. And when this was brought to us, and, and I want to give a shout out, and I think we talked about this before on your podcast, um, but a mutual friend, Luke Hilgeman, with with in, International Order of T. Roosevelt, um, those guys, like, they were like, yeah, we can get this done. Like, not a problem at all. And really, they put their money where their mouth is. They've shown up. They've earned my trust, and 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 I'm really impressed with how they've gone about it. But, um, you know, we're working hard now because November's coming, and um, – you know, as a nonprofit, I can't tell you what to go vote for or anything else, but I just know that it's very important that folks talk about this and be aware that this is going to be on the ballot. Because I, I like to tell people all the time, conservation stuff's on your ballot every day. You just don't know what it is until you dig into it. Mm-hmm. 
And what would you say so far the support for the ballot initiative is? And I think something you guys would hopefully do, and I know you guys are confident to do that. I think you have to take your lawmakers. I know you guys take them on airboat trips and you show them the Everglades, not just the park, but the whole area. But I think it would be prudent upon you guys if you have the ability to. And now that uh, your governor's not running for president anymore, perhaps maybe you guys could bring him, like show him what duck ranching is or show him the value of certain things or, or even some of the senators, state senators or federal senators or Congress people. Um, I think just like personalizing it more. And I know you guys would probably do that. Maybe would help shape the narrative. Like, are they jumping in any of the congressional people, state people um, in support of the effort? We we're so we I, I know that on the duck ranch, we take a number of them hunting just as either clients or they have they have reached out to us and wanted to go hunting over the years and come and see what we do. That's one thing. But I would say overall, there's a little bit of a disconnect between that because of the seasonality of it. I know that you went to NASC this this year. Um, mm-hmm. the Great event. CSF is awesome. Incredible event. If you if you don't go to CSF's NASC, like, I, and I had to miss it this year, um, but it, it's one of my favorite conferences. And um, CSF's an incredible organization. If you if you look at NASC, like, there's no Florida legislators there, and. That's because of the timing of it. It has always been what's passed to me. It always overlines with session or committee week or whatever. But we can go to legislators in the summertime and say, look, we would love to get you out to this and show you this. And it's really difficult to land them there, to get them in the woods or in the water and show them kind of why this matters and and how cool and unique this is, which is part of the reason on the All Florida side, we do so much work with the storytelling um, because that's easier to take a video and show them three minutes than it is to get them to drive across the state and participate in this thing that maybe, maybe they're not used to, maybe they're not new to. That all said, we were really thrilled to see the legislature allow this to go to the ballot in such a bipartisan fashion. It was one fifty nine to one, I think was the final was the final vote count on this, and the one was like a a uh, protest vote. She didn't have a problem with the right to fish and hunt. She was protesting and voting on something else, like as as like a straw man argument almost. So. This has really been kind of bipartisan acceptance, but we still think there's a little bit of a disconnect between um, many of our state legislators and actually hunting and and how that works. And so, you know, we're on the we're kind of on the cusp of of turkey season for us down here in Florida, and this is a this is a dicey area too because for a landowner, an Osceola turkey is a very expensive uh, uh, revenue stream for them. They can make a lot of money selling Osceola turkey hunts, but I often say, you know. If you could take a legislator and, and take them on a hunt and show them your property and, and let them harvest a turkey, like the trade-off on that, you couldn't even put a dollar amount on it. Like it, it, w- it would be incredible if you could share that with them and show that to them uh, in a way that now they've connected with it and understand it. And, and I know there's all kind of laws and rules around how that has to work, but um, we are absolutely open to and hopeful that we can get some more legislators out it, it, to the duck ranch at least and maybe even for some other opportunities but um, it's not the same here as, you know, I've talked to folks at CSF before and they'll have like a legislative dove hunt or, um, you know, a clay shoot or whatever. And it's it's just different, difficult to pull that together uh, in the state of Florida. But we, we keep working on it. Myself, Mike, uh, Mike Elfenbein, you mentioned earlier, like we keep working on it. We're, we're going to figure it out. You guys are good. I know, but absolutely. No, I'm, I'm confident in you guys. But I think it's a matter of just showing these lawmakers who are behind these decisions like what they're missing out on, especially some of the stubborn ones in Tallahassee 
that have yet to kind of unleash the potential of hunting and, and put it on par with fishing because sport fishing, everyone knows Florida is the capital of sport fishing in the world, especially or at minimum here in the United States too, but arguably maybe even sport fishing capital of the world. And the fact that hunting doesn't have the same attention, it's not the fault of activists and conservationists like you guys. It's just because there have been certain barriers put in place or um, some of these kind of preservationist groups have been very successful to, let's say, not allow a bear hunt. We've talked about that before or certain other forms of hunting that could be feasible. Um, or there has been some sort of misinformation over, you know, is this going to imperil this or going to have an impact here? Um, but even though you guys had I would say the efforts to support this amendment rather had near unanimous support that sun sentinel op-ed that I referred to still called the efforts far right and essentially, you know, politically extreme. And I don't know, I know you had some conversations with some of the editorial board. Were you ever able to get a response or to submit a rebuttal to that one editorial? I, I will say in the, so in the Orlando Sentinels and I can't believe I'm saying defense, but I did talk to their editor and and she's very willing to publish some responses. And she said she was willing to even get me some time with their editorial board before their final, um, you know, I guess they publish every year a, I'll say a sample ballot. I don't, I don't know that that's exactly how it looks in the paper, but recommendations on how to vote. Um, she said she was willing to get us some time. So I think, I think time will tell us if that, if that borne out. Um, I did offer to take her on a hunt or a, a fishing trip or something to kind of show her wild Florida through my, my eyes or even one of my, my colleagues eyes, like a Mike Elfenbein or a, a Dylan Hubber. Like we are all willing to kind of, uh, pay the pauper a little bit to, to, to get people out there and show them Florida and why this matters so much, because I guarantee you, you have not seen Florida until you've seen it in a duck boat, until you've seen it in an airboat, until you've seen it in one of Dylan's fishing vessels. Like it's a it's a very special, very unique state. And we we really want to be able to to kind of share that message and show, share that story um, with the Orlando Sentinel renters, because I, I think, you know, we've got a barrier of 60 percent to pass this amendment. And I think casually a lot of people think, oh, this is going to pass. It's a no-brainer. Who would be against hunting and fishing? You would be surprised. And you would be surprised as to what people ascribe something like this to being able to do. Oh, even in that even in that op-ed that you're speaking of, they talked about how it did not include um, – there's typically language around trespassing included in a mm-hmm. right to fish amendment. We took it out because we were asked to take it out because trespassing is a crime already in Florida. This would not supersede that. This would not undo that. Um, Florida, back in the late '90s or mid '90s, I was I was in school. They they passed a gillnet ban that that basically I think was one of the saving graces for inshore fishing in our state. And I would never want to do anything to jeopardize that. But they passed a gillnet ban um, in, in state waters, and there was a there, even in that piece there was like some some level of oh, well, this is going to undo the gillnet ban and supersede it. That's not at all the case what it's going to do. Like that's that was uh, fear-mongering. And, and, I, and I told some of the folks behind that as much. And there was a there was a gentleman, his name's Clay Henderson, that wrote an op-ed that was similarly worded. And I reached out to him privately and was like, hey, I would love to discuss this with you. And he said, no, I've said everything I'm going to say on that. And, and doesn't like, he live here in Virginia? He lives in Virginia now. And it, <laughs> he, he has worked on constitutional issues in Florida. And I think there's some respectful stuff that he's done historically for, for our state from a conservation and a land conservation standpoint, but it was really disappointing that, you know, 
I was willing to sit down and have a conversation with him and see if we could reach a, a better ground and or revise some of those comments because some of them were just outright false. And there was no willingness to even have that conversation, which is a disappointment. It's also a disappointment when you look around and you see other groups propping people like that up because they do something for conservation. And I'm like, well, this this seems pretty clear to there's a right and a wrong side on this. And I don't know how you could be pro-conservation and be on the other side of this issue. I get, I get people being quiet because of fundraising. I, I don't get that. But I get them being quiet because of fundraising and the fear of you know connecting to guns. But at the same time, like conservation is conservation, and this is the right thing to do. It's the right time to do it, and it's important that we do it. I, I think we need to unify more about this, and we need to see more people talking about it um, at, at the state level. And at a, at a, not, not talking legislatively. I'm talking like people that have influence in our state need to be talking more about this, and we need to see it. Um, I'd love to see it pass, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent in a, in a declaration of, yes, this is important, and we understand how important it is to our state. And going back to kind of the looming threats, Washington State, you mentioned, is enduring this. Colorado, California is. California, actually, I think just got someone reasonable on their game and fish board. I saw that in Safari Club's recent email dispatch, and I was like, oh, great, finally. Some sanity has returned to the California game and fish department. But um, there are these concerted efforts, you're right, like groups like Wildlife for All, uh, Washington Wildlife First, and I bet you Humane Society and a few others will jump in because they're very creative, the antis or the preservationists, about coalescing together to fight what they view as a threat like hunting or fishing in their eyes because they are guided by this, you know, very kind of lopsided philosophy. They think we're consumptive, we're destructive, and we're trying to imperil biodiversity. And this also goes along with uh, rewilding efforts, removing people from the landscape. It's inevitable that humans have to be part of conservation decisions and thoughts and and actions. We can't be not involved. We can't just let nature rewild itself. It's not good. Uh, and it's impossible to return, you know, back to an original state or pre-settlement state or of nature. And so, um, yeah, you see these kind of like threats coming around. And and people kind of ignore it or dismiss it until they see it in their state. Is that kind of what you guys are responding to? Because you have seen these different it groups. It is, and I think we've touched on this before, Gabby. But I, like I say, this I, I'm I, I have no problem saying I'm a registered Republican. I tend to vote Republican. Like I, I think I always vote Republican. I, it's concerning to me that you see it in a red state like Florida. Like so, we see some of the same problems, and I relate to some of the same problems that we see in Washington or Oregon or Colorado. And it's based on public pressure on lawmakers and those lawmakers not having a connectivity to sportsman's groups, Correct. not having a connectivity to hunting and fishing. It has very little to do with the lawmakers' political party. It has way more to do with their connection to how they understand conservation to work, how they understand hunting to impact it, how they understand fishing to impact it. Now, I think that is on us. I think I don't think that's on the lawmakers. I think that's on us. Um, and it's imperative on us to make sure that they are aware of the benefits of that. And they are understanding that these are important things that we're able to do. Um, you brought up the bear hunt, like bear hunts are things I don't even like to talk about anymore because it's such a combative issue down here. And in this state where you would think, oh, we're going to follow common sense conservation and, and, and with only state with more than a thousand bears with no bear season, we have more bears now than when Hernando DeSoto landed here. And to advocate for a bear hunt right now is like political suicide to some degree. That's, and that's strange. It's bizarre when you look at it through that lens, but no one has an appetite to discuss it. And here we are, you know, 
Florida, one of the reddest states in the country. And so I'm really hopeful that we can bridge that gap. And, have, and, I, and I don't know. I'm not a bear guy. I'm not, I, I don't know that we should or shouldn't have a bear hunt, what level we should have it at, what, how that, all that should work. I'm just saying that the conversation is met with such resistance that no one is willing to have it. And politically, you would think there would be no risk to it. But politically, there seems to be because there's a disconnect between um, the, the lawmakers and their constituency and and hunting and fishing, the, the sportsman's group. So we, we've really got to do a better job of brokering that and, and bridging that gap. You guys will. I'm I'm confident, especially in Florida, you guys will. But and, and groups like Howl for Wildlife, Sportsman's Alliance, SCI, there are so many out there that you can look to for guidance. And I think individuals like you in, in different states who can help pivot the conversation on this because there is a lot of demystifying still to be had. We try to do this on this podcast, and I'm lucky and fortunate sometimes to be able to shadow people. Um, I may get to do some bear den study sometime this winter, spring, uh, fingers crossed, you know, to kind of showcase that connection between monies from Pittman-Robertson going back to funding bear den studies. Like, and you see cute and cuddly bear cubs, but you understand that there's hunting behind it, not killing the cubs, of course, because that's unethical and you don't do that. But you showcase that there's this revenue stream and there's this connection between those laws, those monies and those activities and how everything is bolstered by one another. It's it's beneficial to kind of every process involved. And no, I, that, I think that's kind of a 2024 thing that people want to kind of demystify hunting more. And, and this is a long-term goal, not just like something we can do one year, but a lot of conservationists, myself, yourself included, have said it's the long game that you have to plan for with respect to making a case for hunting and fishing. And I think trapping is also kind of seeing a renaissance too. And, and then I'll hand it over to you for some final thoughts. But I heard at NASC this past year or a few months ago, or rather last month, that people are now looking to trappers because of turkey numbers dwindling, especially in the Southeast. I've, I've heard this uh, kind of uh, fact and, and factoid time and time again, but the, the trappers are like, yeah, we've actually been brought in now to help with culling predators like coyotes or foxes because they're eating turkeys, uh, especially turkey poults. And so um, I think, you know, for, for even a form of hunting like that, that gets so such a bad rap, um, there may be some turnaround with that, maybe hopefully with Florida bear hunting and hunting as a whole in Florida. But Travis, kind of final thoughts, because we've talked at great length that you're a great storyteller, you're a repository of information, but I want to kind of round out our conversation, like what do you want people from outside Florida or people who are caring about conservation, hunting, fishing, and the like, what would you like to leave them with? Any kind of you know reassuring words or optimism, kind of a healthy dose of reality to be kind of pessimistic, half glass, half full kind of thing. But uh, what do you want to give to our listeners in terms of the future of hunting or, or what could be achieved this year? Well, the hunting is not going away because we are not going to let it go away. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going anywhere. My wife kind of like, she'll get frustrated with the traffic or anything else. And she's like, let's just move to Tennessee or Montana or someplace where there's not a billion people. And I'm like, no, my family's been here since 1870 and we're not going anywhere anytime soon. So, you know, we're in it for the long haul. Myself, Mike Elfenbein, Dylan Hover, um, the guys from CCA, like we're all, we love this place and we love these things and we love these pursuits. Um, so I am hopeful that there is a lot of hope and there's a lot of room for opportunity. I think we've done a pretty crappy job. Um, and I'm talking to me as much as I'm not talking to anybody else. I'm talking to me. I think we've done a pretty crappy job in the past of connecting um, or storytelling how conservation should matter. And when I say conservation, I'm saying hunting and fishing in that that sentence, 
how that should matter to people in the state of Florida. Whether you live in a, in a high rise by Disney World, it should matter to you. And there's reasons it matters to you. So I'm optimistic that we've done a, a pretty poor job and we're not in terrible shape. So imagine if we could coalesce together and 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 build out, you know, a team of people and, and a movement behind the idea of connecting people to these wild places and these wild things and these wild pursuits. What would it look like then? Like we have a lot of opportunity and I'm very optimistic about it. I think it's going to be a lot of work, but I'm very optimistic about it because a lot of work isn't scary. That hard work is not scary. That's that's just something you shoulder up and do. But I'm I'm really optimistic. You know, um, we, we I don't want to belabor the names, but we've mentioned them over and over again on this show. But there's there's a team of people down here that just care so much about the land in this place, and I think we can you know unite together and make the future of Florida incredible and one that incorporates all the stuff that we care about while continuing to be, my opinion, the best state in the history of the world. So there you go. I like to refer to your famous quote, conservation isn't convenient because a lot of people just post on Instagram. They want to get the likes and the clicks and it's great to showcase hunting and fishing, your harvest, your kill, what have you. But you're right. A lot of people are very reluctant to participate in the process. They're reluctant to weigh in on comments. They're reluctant to go to the meetings. It's not as sexy. It doesn't give them likes. It doesn't give them the notoriety or attention that they're seeking. So we should probably challenge the people who have big platforms, bigger than ours perhaps, to get more involved because even just one little video showcasing a hearing or a bill discussing something of that nature or an effort can go a long way. They should use their platform for good. So I think that's something we would like to see more. I know you probably agree with me regarding that sentiment because, you know, a little attention will go far and maybe it'll reach the non-endemic folks better too. We say all the time, like one of our one of kind of our, our tent poles at All Florida is decisions get made by those who show up. We stole that from the West Wing. It's true. <laughs> it, it, you can you can see the influence in the room based on who's in the room. And and we can go we could go back to like some of the anti-hunting groups or the environmental groups or whatever, and you can look at their influence over time. It's because they show up over and over and over again in these rooms. And I think sportsmen, we show up but we tend to be quiet. We tend to kind of go along to get along. That's in our nature as as kind of we like to go be quiet in the woods and be 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 out and away from folks. So, but I think decisions get made by showing up and we need to be showing up. We need to be in those rooms and show up over and over and over again. The change happens like in the smallest iotas in positive directions. So um, I'm optimistic, but I, I, I thankful for you for, for letting us use your platform and, and sharing our story with, with other folks. It's always wonderful to have you on Travis and for anyone wanting to follow you, all Florida, the efforts to pass the amendment, where should people go? Yeah. So um, you find me on Facebook, Travis Thompson. There's just a bunch of us out there, but you'll find me. I'm the one with some ducks probably in my picture. And then uh, on Instagram, I'm at Travis Thompson, one word. All Florida is all F-L-A-O-R-G is our Instagram handle. And then Duck Ranchin is Duck Ranchin with no G as our Instagram handle. And you can find us at all those places and they all have links to all of our other stuff. So we're pretty easy to find. We're pretty accessible. And we love to talk about this stuff um, with anyone that's interested and wants to have a conversation about it. We're always willing to bridge the gap and, and try to get more people on the team. Travis and the Florida crew do, do phenomenal work for conservation. I can personally attest to that. Proud to be friends with you guys and happy to amplify anything you do because everything that happens all across the country affects all of us in some shape or form. So Travis, thank you so much for coming on. And I look forward to doing duck ranching 
later down the road this year and come back anytime with an update about the amendment, maybe closer to the election. That would be really interesting to see where public opinion is about it. But I'd love you guys, I'd love for you guys to update our listeners about that too. It would be good to have an update. Thanks for having me, Gabs. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.